Greetings, mortals. Welcome to Fatal Fortunes. I'm Al. I'm Nathan. Join us for a deep dive into some of history's most fascinating characters who live dangerously beautiful lives and whose legacies haunt us today. Nathan, how are you? How was your summer? I didn't do a a whole lot. I, I worked a lot. Um and visited family a little bit um saw some friends here and there but mostly um was just moving at the last month like i don't know about anybody else but august barely experienced that month it was just like went by and then the summer then the summer was over um yeah but what about you what did you get up to in the summer i worked on a movie um, nice. could not find a legal internship, so, um, you know, I found one of my dad's old students and said, hey, sis, I need a job. Um, and after, you know, a few months of persistence, I got jobby job, you know, now we're back in law school, and, you know, about once a week, I'm like, damn, my set friends are just so much cooler than my law school friends. <laughs> And then my last, and then my set friends will call, and they'll say, "Al, don't don't miss us. Call time is six thirty p.m. Like, don't miss us. Mm. Yeah. Or like, don't miss us. Mikey died yesterday on set. Like, don't miss us. Yeah. Wait. So, what is the deal? It's I A. What is it? I A F or I A S? That's what? all the stuff that's coming out right now about. Oh, like, IATSE. IATSE. That's what it is. I IATSE. Yeah. 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 So, you know, could be a strikey strike. Yeah. And I was, like, talking to my parents about it. And my mom was like, don't strike, just leave. And we were like, Bob, that's what that is. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, that's pretty much She's like, I don't get why we have to strike if all of us look at each other when we hit the 10-hour shooting day, grab our backpacks and leave. It's not like they can do anything. And they're yeah. not going to fire us because no one wants to pay unemployment. So. True. They just cut that off. And no one should have to work a 10-hour day in, in any facet. God, that's oh, awful. Oh, dude. One day I hit a 15-hour day. I believe it. I've heard people almost getting up to, like, a full day of work. And I'm like. I asked. I asked someone. I was like, yo, what is the longest day you ever work? And she was like, 20 hours. I was like, oh. oh. Because she, like, not only was she, you know, doing something locations department-y, she was also doing something, like, DIT department-y. So she'd have to, like, race from set with the cards to upload to the system to be where the person who was editing was. What is DIT? Um, digital or data something technician. (laughs) Oh, okay. Um, It's the person Information? Maybe. Um, it's the person who uploads, you know, make sure that you, that the card wasn't corroded and you don't have to reshoot that again right then. Okay. Yeah. Important job. Yeah. The person clearing Save the cards, the uploading movie. the stuff, Yeah, you know, literally holding the movie in their hands. Um, but yeah, I worked on a movie, loved it. Um, also know that if I work on another movie, I'm not going to grow as a lawyer. So... Sad. Why do you why do you think that? Because I'm not getting the like relevant legal experience that I need mm. at this time in my life. Like when I, once I have to start paying these loans, I I can't uh, work for but free. Ow, we just shouldn't pay them. 
We just shouldn't <laughs> pay them at all. Come on. Just. But Joe Biden lied to us. He literally yeah, said, I will up. forgive the loans. And then he said, okay, I'll only forgive like 10K of the loans. And then now it's not in the plan. It's 0K. Yeah. It's <laughs> now ridiculous. he's forgiving none of it. It's 0K but, and it's not okay. Okay. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just not paying them. I'm just not going to pay a cent. I moved to Providence, everyone. Wow. Yeah. I moved to Somerville. Not, I know, not I'm too so big happy of a move for you. For me. Yeah, yeah, I'm so happy it's for better. you. Is it nice? You it's have a better. car now? I don't have a car. Alex has oh. a car. Oh. But it's nice. Figures. It's electric. Oh, so no road trips is what I'm hearing. They just went on one to Vermont. They camped in the woods by themselves. Oh. Yeah. Bold. Very bold. They went for two nights. Wouldn't be me. Yeah, I couldn't. I didn't want to go. <laughs> they were like, I don't mind that. And they were like, no one asked you. Yeah. No one asked you to come. Pretty much. We also have merch now. Um, you can buy merch by signing up through Patreon. Um, you can get a tote bag or a sticker. And our Patreon is, of course, always linked in, I don't know, what do you call it? I don't know, the interface? The, the Patreon is always Yeah, the description. Yeah. Exactly. The Patreon yeah. is always linked in the description. We will also add to the description the Society 6 link where you can get stuff that's more than tote bags. You can get little, I don't know, wall hangings of our little icon, little cards, more stickers, different totes. So I saw you had out. a couple of bath mats on there, and honestly, I'm, I'm in desperate need of one. So <laughs> I might be going to the Society 6 store for a bath mat. Perfect. We're going to have a new subscriber method through Anchor. They're letting you do this thing where you can set up monthly um, subscribers to get exclusive content. So we'll take the content that's already up on Patreon exclusively and put that on Anchor as well. And it's just going to be like a separate Spotify feed for subscribers only. And I think that's going to be really fun. And I hope you guys sign up. It's the first episode of season two. And we are picking up basically right where we left off with Mary Shelley. Nathan, do you want to tell the people what was going on in 1797? So what was going on in the world was that Albany got changed to New York's capital. I've never been. The modern Italian flag is introduced. Also probably a big uh, move for New Yorkers. (laughs) Even crazier, top hats are invented. Now, that's bold. That's bold of them to make that in 1797. Um, the U.S. refused to accept the first petition from an African-American, uh, the first of many petitions. Trinidad is colonized. Um, New Hampshire, local Nathaniel Briggs invents a washing machine. Nice. Uh, Napoleon conquers France in the first coalition. Not so Nice. Abolitionist Sojourner Truth is born, as is composer Franz Schubert. And, of course, the loss of Mary Wollstonecraft is around where the story begins. Yes, and, you know, Mary was born in the Georgian period and came of age during the Regency, which, of course, we are all familiar with now that we've all watched Bridgerton. Everything could cause scandal. You know, your reputation could be ruined for nothing. And everyone knew their station in life, your station in life, and social climbing was a scandal in and of itself. So for Mary to have a parent 
like she had, it makes sense that she would, you know, fall into a similar crowd of literary celebrity. So Mary Shelley was born Mary Wollstonecraft Goodwin on August 30th, 1797 in London to writers William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft. Her mother lived only 11 days before William became a single father to Mary and her half-sister Fanny Ilmay from a previous relationship of her mom's. William spends the next year, you know, compiling his late wife's memoirs, and when he publishes it in 1798, it causes the scandal and reveals her adventures and illegitimate daughter. Just as her future husband would be, Mary's father was in a whole lot of debt, and it wasn't long until he began to look for a second wife who could both raise his children and bring some money into the home. In 1801, he married Mary Jane Claremont, and she brought into the family Charles and Claire. She had never been married before, just like the first Mary, and Claire um, was less than a year younger than Mary, and she's, you know, really spicy in her own right. She eventually gives birth to one of Lord Byron's kids, Allegra, and she comes up, you know, later in the story a whole bunch. William and Mary Jane's marriage is, you know, another shotgun wedding, just like to our heroine's mother, and they have a son in 1802, but he dies in infancy. That doesn't stop these two, and they have another son named William Godwin the Younger, who also does some writing in 1803. The marriage was generally successful, but neither Godwin's friends or daughter embraced the new mistress of the house, and this is because, you know, Mary Jane would often beat Mary for taking part in adult conversations and because Mary Jane would play favorites among her own children over Fanny and Mary. Her father eventually started a publishing company with his new wife dealing with children's books and stationery and William moved the family to the booksellers district of London and out of the home he had shared with Mary Wollstonecraft. They went from having fresh air of the suburbs to the early industrial streets of inner London and you know it affects everyone's health. It was really gross back then. But the publishing company itself is not a success, and it quickly um, runs William into debt. Uh, remember, this was a time when debtor's prison was a thing, and, you know, William was only saved from indigence, a word I learned in law school this summer, um, by, of course, borrowing more money. This was from Francis Place, a Malthusian political reformer, and I got to use the word Malthusian in <laughs> law school the other day and everyone was like good job big word so yeah. i don't know it <laughs> it's um when like population can grow exponentially until it just can't sustain any more life and then there's a bell curve of dying off oh my god wow yeah how did you use that in the class because we were talking about how um, trademark and advertising, like how advertising is the last chain and, um, you know, creation, distribution, consumption, and then advertising is what brings it all together so that that cycle can keep continuing. So there's, you know, always a need for more. Mm. And I said it's kind of like a Malthusian collapse. Like we're saying that consumption can grow exponentially until it just hits a breaking point and the population dies off. And this class is so pessimistic. I thought we were like, ooh, trademark and advertising, yay. Watching Mad Men, yay. No, it's not like that at all. We watch stuff about depressing climate change every day. Yep. That sounds Sucks. about right. 
Damn. Mary's primary tutor was her father. She had little formal schooling. William acknowledged that he hadn't raised the girls as Wollstonecraft had set out in her Vindications of the Rights of Women, but he still made sure that it was an advanced learning experience. By 1807, she could recite her mother's philosophies by heart. She's only 10. It was also around this time that Aaron Burr, Hamilton villain, befriends the family and um at age 14 she finally gets to go to school at ramsgate which is a seaside town in kent this only lasts for about six months unfortunately at the age of 15 her father compared wollstonecraft's two daughters and nathan would you read this quote for us my own daughter mary is considerably superior in capacity to the one her mother had before fanny the eldest is of a quiet modest, unshowy disposition, somewhat given to indolence, which is her greatest fault, but sober, observing, peculiarly clear, and distinct in the faculty of memory, and disposed to exercise her own thoughts and follow her own judgment. Mary, my daughter, is the reverse of her in many particulars. She is singularly bold, somewhat imperious, and active of mind. Her desire for knowledge is great, and her perseverance in everything she undertakes is almost invincible. My own daughter is, I believe, very pretty. Fanny is by no means handsome, but in general prepossessing. What the fuck, dude? I know. That's so messed up. That's your wife's that daughter. Fucked up. Yeah. And your daughter. It's weird yeah. that he said that. Yeah, it's not it's not a good look. And um, that's like some people saying if they weren't my daughter, I'd yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Mm-mm. yeah. no, thank you, and William. When I was like doing the research, um, <laughs> you find the full quote, you know, in biographies of Fanny, but in biographies oh. of Mary, in biographies of Mary, you only find the end where he's talking about how, you know, she's imperious and wonderful and stuff. They like totally cut out the horrible stuff that he starts with talking about Fanny. It's pretty bad. Wow. Yeah. Revisionist history in Mary Shelley biographies. Yeah. So Mary leaves boarding school and, you know, William is quickened with the idea that his daughter should become a philosopher and that, you know, Fanny should do nothing. Um, There are more reasons speculated for her being sent to William Baxter's home in Scotland. Perhaps it's her health. You know, they're living in a really gross part of London right now. Um... Which I don't get because, you know, in history up until this point, people go to Scotland and they get some weird tubercular illness and die. So I don't get why they're like, ooh, Scotland for the health. I'm like, I don't think that that's where you're supposed to go. Nobody understood health, though, back then, did they? No. Yeah. Especially no, this Europeans. Is like, this is like right when we got, like, inoculation. This is right when Catherine the Great was like... You know, guys, we could inoculate ourselves against smallpox. And everyone's like, no, no you way. can't. I want to go outside <laughs> and kiss everybody. <laughs> there we go. Maybe it was also to escape this wicked stepmother who, you know, yeah. beats her for Mary talking Jane. like the adult her father wanted her to be. What does that even mean, talking like an adult? Like, what is she talking about that's adult? I don't know. Maybe she. Maybe Aaron Burr's at the dinner table. They're talking about philosophy. She butts in, gets her ass smacked. She's like, I really don't think you should have shot that guy. 
That's probably the endless debate. Like, maybe you shouldn't be in exile here. And, you know, this is the time where it gets even more juicy. I don't. I think it's been pretty juicy thus far, but oh, yeah. Percy Shelley enters the frame. While Mary is away in Scotland, Percy begins writing to Godwin. You know, he's flattering him on his work, Political Justice. You know, Fanny's still at home. Percy asks if the 18-year-old would come and live with him. Percy by now is 20 and already has, you know, quite the reputation surrounding him. In 1811... He eloped with Harriet Westbrook in Edinburgh, and she is the 16-year-old student who also goes to the same boarding school as his sisters, and this got him financially cut off from his family. So Godwin obviously says, no, my 18-year-old daughter cannot come live with you. And um, it really seems like Fanny is the first object of Percy's pursuit and affection, and um, they may have actually been in love, but she was sent to Wales, and we will never know what could have been. I think Fanny could honestly have been her own fatal fortune in herself, but. Yeah. Fanny's fortune. Yeah. Oh, Fanny's fortune mini-sode. Mini-episode. Could do it. Now it's time for our main Mary to meet Percy. So who is Percy? He's a radical poet-philosopher at the time. And he first meets Mary when she is stopped in Scotland uh, at the Baxter's. Around 1814. Percy was only radical then uh, because he didn't really agree with his aristocratic parents, um, you know, with that marriage and all. It, it earned him some alienation. All because he wanted to sink all of that money into programs to help the disadvantage. Um, so that was what his radical political views were. Nevertheless, he was estranged from his wife at the time. So he and Mary began to secretly meet by her mother's grave, by Mary Wollstonecraft's grave. Um, gross. And, and it's really gross, yeah. Um, they fell in love. Uh, there, apparently, the, the story is that, like, they told each other that they loved each other at the grave. Um, and despite this five-year age gap he has over her, they, um, on June 26th, which is my parents' anniversary, which is also weird. Oh, wow. But, yeah, good day, I guess. Um, in 1814, they secretly elope and leave for France with Mary's stepsister, Claire, which is going to bring some problems later. This elopement is made a little more strange when you figure in Mary's father, William Godman. Uh, Percy had been seeing him as his political mentor very often. And when he told William about his intentions, yeah, um, he was told no. But he did it anyway, so... That's, uh, he's, he's disappointing all parents on all sides, um, because they elope pretty much right after he's told no, not before Percy solidifies a loan of 3,000 pounds, which he leaves most of for William and his now pregnant wife, Harriet, which some lead, are led to believe, some are led to believe that maybe Godwin was in on this elopement secretly and sold his daughters. But I was not able to find any more on that. Although men doing abhorrent shit seems like possible. Um, I just did the mathy math and yeah. uh, 3,000 pounds in 1815 is worth $275,000 today. Wow. 
That ain't small. <laughs> wow. It's a quarter of a mil right there. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Whew. Well, Whew. with this elopement, um, the trio went on their honeymoon tour across war-torn Europe. Godwin calls Fanny home from Wales to help deal with this situation. Uh, Mary Jane wrote off Fanny at this time. Quote, Emotion was deep when she heard of the sad fate of the two girls. She cannot get over it. Unquote. This tension also causes William Jr. to run away from home, and all the families involved are dragged through the press. So Wicked Stepmama Jane, she goes over to meet up with the trio in Calais. And uh, if anyone has forgotten, Calais is, you know, the last stronghold of the English in France that, you know, Mary I loses back in them ye old 1500s. And they say that they have no intentions of returning to England. Cough, cough, short-lived. Uh, they continue to Paris and often travel by foot through France. You know, it's still in the grips of the Napoleonic Wars. They reach Switzerland. Was neutral, is neutral, always going to be neutral Switzerland. And Shelley sends a message back to Harriet, wife number one, asking her to bring the money that he had left back in England. Harriet's still pregnant and, you know, probably pissed that her husband ran off with another teenager. Doesn't do that, clearly. And um, when they don't hear from her, they leave Luzerne and travel back across the continent through Germany and the Netherlands. And they arrive back in Kent on September 13th, 1814. Basically, a three-month tantrum. Three-month wild honeymoon across the Napoleonic Wars. With your stepsister. Yeah. There's there's a lot of rumors that Percy and Claire did some not-so-great stuff together. Yes. Um, I, I went into it a little bit okay. later. And great. And we talk about Italy. Good. Fucking monster. Speaking of monsters. <laughs> great segue. Speaking Thank of you. monsters. Speaking of monsters. Perhaps the most iconic monster of all time is the one that our main Mary, Mary Shelley, uh, created on one fateful night in the summer of 1816. It's a writer's competition orchestrated by the host of this uh, mansion that they're in, Lord Byron, and it includes him, Mary Shelley, Percy, um, and Lord Byron's physician, John Poldori. But John Poldori also, I think, wrote like some Dracula book after this little writer's organization uh moment it was a moment <laughs> they all take their shot at the best ghost story they can come up with and by a long shot the winner is mary who ended up writing frankenstein or uh some know it as the modern prometheus truly it was mary who ended up being prometheus giving birth to this whole new genre of science fiction writing and bringing with it a great success in a story that is still referenced to this day the context of when this was written is really fascinating, especially because it was during the year without a summer. Um, and that's because there was an eruption of a volcano, Mount Tambora, which caused a very nasty volcanic winter, like all across uh, the UK. So not too great for them. Um, and this book was also written weeks after the suicide of her half-sister, Fanny. So, yeah, 
another possible mini episode we could do on the fatal fortune of Fanny. And of course, you know, although her husband is encouraging her writing and expanding this idea into a full novel, he did have an affair with her stepsister, Claire. And in another whammy for 19-year-old Mary, uh, Harriet, Percy's wife, uh, drowns herself in the Serpentine River and leaves the custody of her and Shelley's son, Charles, to his father and that of their daughter to other relatives. These tragedies do nevertheless clear the way for Mary and Percy's marriage to be fully legalized. And you know, I didn't um, include this in the write-up, but at one point the court actually takes custody of the kids from Percy. Wow. So they know. This is a big society thing. Yeah. Poor kids having to go through all this. Yeah, and I looked it up. I think he had, you know, seven children in total, and only two of them lived to adulthood. Yeah. Wow. Of course, uh, Mary is no stranger to death, and this story is all about death. Frankenstein's all about death. Her own mother dies during her birth, falling victim to the other side of that uh, with the death of her own firstborn, which was a little bit before writing Frankenstein. And while writing this book, her secondborn, William, um, was, was, not, was not long for this world. He was um, very young and did not live much longer than that. Yeah, as we mentioned, not many of them lived to adulthood. If anyone wanted to bring back the dead, I'd, I'd say it had to have been Mary Shelley. And she wrote a thrilling story inspired by it, uh, by grief and the loss that she has experienced. Now, of course, there are many different versions uh, of Frankenstein, some editions where Percy takes far too many liberties with his descriptors, and the first one published doesn't even credit Mary. It's attributed to an anonymous writer. I hate that. Yeah, I mean, figures. But she finally completes her writing in May of 1816, so the next next year, and it eventually gets published um, in the following year, January 1st of 1818. And yeah, this was the anonymous version with a preface written for Mary by Percy, but dedicated to William Godwin. So Mary's not even really, yeah, really her name is not on this first copy. But 13 years later, in 1831, um, she gets hold of the story again and makes heavy revisions. And that is the version that is most widely read today. Maybe I'm not a fan of the romantic period of writing, but all of the, I don't know, all of the descriptors, just like so many um, that I mentioned before, sometimes are attributed to Percy. And that's what I'll believe because those were the parts that I did not really enjoy. Because um, it's like, come on, get on with the story. It's really interesting. Uh, it's a really interesting style of literature at the time, too. A lot of the book um, is broken up into letters, and it's told from multiple perspectives. So the switching of the perspectives is, I think, really ahead of its time. Um, and today, that monster that she created in the book, Frankenstein's Monster, it's appeared in over 50 pieces of media. Personally seen so many kids dress up as this monster on Halloween, which is right around the corner. And although it is 
most often referencing the movie version, um, what with the you know green skin and the bolts in the neck, it still shows what an influential writer Mary Shelley was and how her legacy and imagination is still alive. I love this edition of Frankenstein where it's on stage. It's the National Theater or something, and Benedict Cumberbatch, he plays the monster. I remember <laughs> watching it you know, on the big screen at the Coolidge Corner Theater as a teen. Wow. Top-notch. Top-notch. But you know, personally, if we're talking Dracula or Frankenstein, it's Dracula on a thousand. I still have to see that, uh, was it Bram, Bram Stoker's Dracula? The movie? The movie. With Winona Ryder? That's the one. Yep. I haven't seen it. Gotta see it. I just want to say, everyone, I really recommend listening to audiobooks. I think audiobooks are just, you know, a wonderful way to read nowadays. How ironic is that? But... <laughs> If you get the most popular edition of Dracula, it has some. It has Alan Rickman in it, which is amazing. R.I.P. in pieces. Wow. Yeah. But the woman who does Lucy Westerbrook's voice, literally, I turn it off every time. Every time I get to chapter four and it's her chapter, I have to turn it off. <laughs> it's like a cheese grater or like oh. fingernails on a chalkboard. It's horrible. Yeah, wait. Cheese grater is good. You get cheese out of that. But yeah, fingernails on <laughs> chalkboard is bad i don't know how this story could get any spicier it keeps getting spicier you know a mother dies you lose your baby you lose your sister your husband's baby mama and other wife dies i don't know how it could get crazier from here but it does so the three of them left england again in march of 1818 and this time they head for italy i loved italy when we went to italy Except so many people got robbed. Except, yeah, I was about to say, except for the part where people got stuff stolen. <laughs> Back to Mary Shelley. These three are at it, and with them in tow is Claire's daughter, Allegra, by Lord Byron, who we mentioned way, way earlier. And, you know, Allegra could be a little mini Fatal Fortune. Lord Byron, he could be, you know, his own big Fatal Fortune. But if we keep doing the Regency, suddenly it's a Regency podcast, and that's not what I came here to do. No way. So they're going to meet up with Lord Byron, who has finally said, okay, Claire, I will take care of the baby. I will raise the baby in Venice, so long as you have nothing to do with the child ever again. So they meet up in Venice, hand off the baby. Byron immediately puts this baby in a convent. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That, that's his way of um, dispatching with the situation. They make it to Venice, but... Mary and Percy's daughter, Claire. Uh, so another Claire, Clara, she dies in September. And this leads to a period of estrangement between the couple. It's very upsetting. They end up moving to Naples to, you know, try and shake some of that off. Something really weird about this time is that Mary and Percy are registered as parents of a baby girl born December 27th, 1818, but no one really knows how or why this happens. It could have been for a few reasons. First, uh, it could have been because they wanted to adopt a child to fill the void that had been left by Clara. And, uh, you know, maybe this was actually Claire's baby by Percy, but for some reason they registered as Mary's baby. This also... Could have been, you know, just a random baby left on the doorstep in the middle of the night. We have no idea. The trio has this baby baptized as Elena on February 27th, 1819. But then they leave Naples the following day for Rome and leave the baby behind. Whoa. Make it make sense. 
they want a baby, they don't want a baby, what the hell? Like, <laughs> and thinking about it, they're about our age right now, you know. Don't abandon the like, baby. They're like 22, 23, 24. Um, you want a baby, you don't want a baby, you want a baby, you don't want a baby. Um, that's life. I get it, I guess. Uh, I don't want a baby. Um, they leave this baby in Naples, then they go to Rome. And they're all talking about, you know, they love Italy, even though all these sad things are happening to them. It's a really, you know, creative and productive time for them. And then, of course, more tragedy again. Their son William dies in June of malaria. There, there he goes. There he goes. I knew it. He now, knew he there wasn't he long. goes. So now these people who were once, you know, parents of three are again childless. And Mary's only 22. So again, because these people cannot stay in one place. They roll into Florence in October, and then in November, Mary gives birth to her last and only surviving child, Percy Florence Shelley. Yay! Woo-hoo, he made it. Of course, like we said, these people are just moving, 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 and they roll on to Pisa next. And in Pisa, Percy gets assaulted outside of a post office and blackmailed over Elena, the baby, who is still alive back in Naples. And oh. as per usual, the creditors in England are asking for their money back. Don't leave a baby in Naples. Don't do it. So the three of them find out about baby Elena's death in July, and Claire is finally out of here. She moves on, and she heads to Florence. Mary is still depressed, and it's not helped by Percy continuing to chase women, even women who live in their building, very, you know, Don Draper style. By 1822, Allegra has died in this convent, putting further stress on the members of the set, because, you know, it's not just a Claire, Percy, Mary world. There's Byron, there's Keats, there's Hunt, there's a whole bunch of different other literary people floating and surrounding them. And, you know, the summer... It doesn't bring, you know, any more good news um, because Mary almost dies of a miscarriage in her fifth pregnancy. And she's ultimately saved from Percy's first aid, which I don't really understand because all I thought people did back then was get infections and die. So I don't get how any intervention's really helpful. Yeah, I think I saw this where he's like put her in a bathtub of like really cold water or something. And the doctor was like, you saved her life. I'm like, what? Huh? Okay, I guess. And at the same time, you know, Percy, he's having a whole bunch of hallucinations about, you know, their dead friends and himself, you know, murdering his wife. Oh, fuck. He's going cuckoo bananas. And it's also because, you know, you could buy anything in this era. You could buy anything at the drugstore. You could literally, like, huff paint. If it was bottled, you would sell it and someone would take it. So he's taken a bunch of weird things that, you know, definitely today would a doctor would never give you. But back then, you could buy at the at the grocer. The next spicy thing that happens, which I think might be the climax of ye old story, is, you know, Percy is going to visit Lord Byron and this guy named Leigh Hunt. And they set sail on a boat that they've poetically named Don Juan, which seems, wow. like, really annoying. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In hindsight, naming your, like, not seaworthy boat Don Juan. Just guys just being dudes. Yeah, exactly. Just guys being dudes. Like, no homo, bro. We love it. Um, wow. So they've they have a successful... each other. They've explored each other's bodies, for sure. Oh, my God. On the Don Juan. Oh, my God. Well, what we come to find out is that none of these people know how to boat. None of these people do boats at all. <laughs> because they're too um, busy exploring each other's bodies. 
Yes, they're too busy exploring each other's bodies. No one learns how to sail a boat. So basically, they talk about this literary magazine. They're like, okay, word, we're going to do it. Basically, it's a long meeting to talk to your friend about the zine. So they finalize the zine plans, you know, put some staples in the side of the paper, and um, they attempt to return to where Mary is waiting for them at Larici. I don't know where that is, but it's some place in Italy called Larici. Hmm. And, um, you know, the two immediately get lost in a storm. Uh, they come to find out that, the you know, the Don Juan, which had been custom made for Mr. No Money Percy, he's borrowing a bunch of money to get a custom made ship. And this custom made ship is overmasted and, you know, not seaworthy. I don't know what overmasted means, but someone who knows boats knows um, it's overmasted. So, um, you know, they're inexperienced. Doesn't help the situation, clearly. About 10 days later, Percy's body washes ashore in Tuscany, and his body's only identifiable from the suit that he's wearing and the Keats poem in his pocket. So he gets cremated on the beach on August 16th, 1822, and we'll include that famous painting scene in the show notes at fatalfortunes.com. Please check it out. I've been doing a lot of work on the website. Um, And... Something that's really weird is that his heart doesn't burn, and maybe people think that that's because of some old tuberculosis thing. And they end up taking the heart out of the fire, they preserve it in wine, and then Lay just walks away with it. Um, And he doesn't pass it off to Mary. It's a whole big thing. And the heart today is either at Christ Church Priory in Dorset or in St. Peter's Church at Bournemouth. I don't know why this is like, you know, the shroud of Jesus Christ, and we don't really know where it is. Yeah. Or who has it? Like, the Ark of the Covenant. It's not like this should be, like, Percy's you might have heart. it, you might have it. Like, who has it? And what I think was an amazing piece of journalism is that the courier printed, Shelley, the writer of some infidel poetry, has been drowned. Now he knows whether there is God or no. Oh. Boom, roasted. Oh. Roasted. Whoa. After Percy's death, Mary lived with, is it Lay or Lee? I hate to, the answer to be, I don't care. All right, all right. Well, I'm going to say it different because I think it'll be funny. After Percy's death, Mary lived with Lee Hunt and his family for a year in Genoa, but her financial situation was somewhat dire. She then moved in 1823 to live with her father and stepmother in Strand. This was a short-lived arrangement uh, as Percy's father ended up giving Mary an allowance to help her move into her own place. That's nice. Thanks. However, the relationship between Timothy Shelley and Mary wasn't the best, since he was vying for complete guardianship over her son, Percy Florence, which she obviously was not too keen on. And instead, she was able to get that allowance. But notably, Timothy never talked to her in person about this and only dealt with matters through lawyers. So that's pretty... Pretty uh, cold of a shoulder there that he's given her. Mary spent her days editing her late husband's poems, but was told never to release them in a biography or Timothy would stop the allowance. In the summer of 1824, Mary moves to Kentish Town in North London to be with Jane Williams. That is the woman from the apartment building who Percy had a thing for way back. Mm, Don Draper. She does uh, say some awful thing about how Percy preferred her, so she's a real jerk, too, Jane Williams. Um, Throughout all of this, though, 
Mary is still trying to honor her husband by writing a novel called The Last Man. So Percy was not the last man, though, um, as American actor John Howard Payne fell for Mary when he had visited London in 1826 and ended up asking Mary to marry him, which she refused. And then from 1827 to 1840, Mary was busy writing novels like The Fortunes of Perkin Warbeck, Faulkner, spelled well, that di- good. differently that. from the author, but yeah, The Fortunes does sound nice, um, and a book called Lodore. She also wrote in ladies' magazines, all the while still re- supporting her father, William Godwin. They would look out for publishers for each other, which was, I think, pretty sweet. Unfortunately, though, he died in 1836 at the age of 80. Damn. So, yeah, he made it pretty long. Mary continued to help lift up women around, around her as her mother taught her. She notably gave financial aid to Mary Diana Dodds, who was a single mother who was deemed illegitimate herself and also uh, thought to be a lesbian. Mary helped her and her lover, Isabel Robinson, embark on a life together in France. And another woman helped by Mary was Georgina Paul, a woman who was disallowed from her husband for the crime of adultery. Mary wrote about Georgiana, quote, I do not make a boast. I do not say aloud, behold my generosity and greatness of mind. For in truth, it is simple justice I perform. And so I am still reviled for being worldly, unquote. Mary continued to use caution with romantic interests as her main priority was Percy Florence's well-being. Nevertheless, this didn't stop flirting between her and another writer, Prosper Mermillet. I hate these names. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Prosper. Mary was also flirting with this friend of hers, Edward Trelawney, about maybe one day marrying. This proposed arrangement didn't last long, though, as they both had differing opinions on how her late husband should be honored through his writing. Percy Florence is noted to not share either of his parents' interests in writing and is supposed to have dabbled in politics and law instead. So I guess there is some writing in there, but not the kind they were doing. And after his completion of university in 1841, he went home to be with his mother. Mary's final years were quite difficult. On top of the health issues she was having, she was also still raising a child and all the while blackmailed by multiple men over a lot of letters that she had written. One was to an Italian political exile, Getesky. Say uh, with the accent. Getesky. All right. <laughs> he's, he's threatening Sorry, to release oh, letters okay, sent funny. to him from Mary, Mamma Mia. That's a spicy meatball. They were eventually bought off and destroyed. Yet another instance of blackmail with letters addressed from Mary this time, to someone who called themselves G. Byron, who claimed to be a legitimate child of the one and only Lord Byron. Um, So there's some blackmail between that guy and Mary, and and finally, there's a man named Thomas Medwin, who's Percy's cousin, who had claimed uh, to have a very damning biography on Percy. And he said he wouldn't publish it for 250 pounds, but Mary refused. I wonder how much 250 pounds is. I mean, if 3,000 is like a quarter million, that's got to be like thousands. I think it's like still. six grand. Right. It's yeah. got to be. It's got to be still a lot of money. 
And these weren't Mary's only hardships uh, in her final years. Physical ailments plagued her as well, having headaches and paralysis, which made it more difficult to read and write. In the end, she passed away at Chester Square, uh, one of the homes she was staying in, at the age of 53 on February 1st, 1851. A doctor later hypothesized that she may have had a brain tumor, which would have been the cause of her death. Now here's where things get more uncomfy. Like they aren't. Like yeah. she's been so uncomfy the whole time. <laughs> it's going to get even worse. <laughs> About Mary's burial. She'd been asked to be buried with her parents in St. Pancras, but Percy Jr. and Jane thought the appearance was, quote, dreadful. Oh, my. <laughs> they moved her to St. Peter's Church in Bournemouth near their new home, which was very convenient for them, I bet. In addition, uh, after a year had passed since her death, Peter and Jane opened up her box desk and found some very interesting things inside. This included locks of her dead children's hair, a notebook shared with her husband Percy, a copy of his poem Adonai with one page folded over containing some of his ashes, and a piece of his heart, which is curious because we had earlier said that, who is it, Byron took the whole heart? No, it was Hunt. Was Hunt Lee. took the whole heart. Lee Lay. Lee Hunt. Well, she apparently, someone said that had a little piece of his heart, maybe trying to uh, make a little Frank and Percy, but that never Whoa. happened. Uh, and as I said, the creation of Frankenstein's monster was this historic event in her life, but it was far from the uh, most disturbing thing she ever experienced. That was probably want, a good moment. That was actually like, know, you know, yeah, a bright spot. I also want to note that there are a lot of rumors that during that whole writer's thing, there was a lot of opium involved. Um, so, yeah, if that's the case, it probably was a very good time. She um, was like the original Kurt Cobain. Oh, my God. That is Mary Shelley, all in all. A great writer. Uh, lived a very, very hard life. Lost a lot, but very also gave a lot. spicy life, though, for a woman yeah. in this time period, you know, where the expectation was that you just, you know, stayed in your stature and standing, and, you know, you stayed at your country house, and then you had your bunch of babies until you died at 25 with, like, seven kids. But if she had done that, that would have been a great disservice to her mother's legacy. Yep. Who also yep. was not about Her mom that. was the blueprint. Her mom yeah. was the blueprint. You know, we discussed how in – go listen to the season if one you finale. Haven't already. We discussed uh, yeah. about how, you know, she traveled around Europe too. She walked so Mary could run. Definitely. Yeah. Really illustrious, fun family who's given us a lot of other things to talk about. Thank you guys so much for listening to the season two premiere remember to check out our merch on society six and on patreon remember to check back in the middle of october for the subscriber system on anchor um and you know that's it and i think that we'll see you guys next time with you know another crazy fatal fortune we have a lot of fun stuff planned for season two on tuesdays we talk ghosts see you next time